Today's reading is from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're new to Grace, we're in a series titled Living as a Creative Minority, and it's drawn from Daniel 1 to 6. And I've set up the past two Sundays by uh, describing what one uh, writer has called the great unraveling of modernity in Western uh, society. And after last Sunday, I had a wonderful conversation out in the lobby with some people, and they were talking about uh, the sermon. And one of the persons made this comment about the fact that this realization that we're not going back. 
And I was thinking about the fact that I had titled the sermon last week, uh, We're Not in Kansas Anymore, an obvious reference to The Wizard of Oz, but in The Wizard of Oz, there's this expectation of getting back to Kansas because there's no place, what, like home, right? But what if we're not going back home? What if we're not going back to the way things used to be? What if the new normal is that there is no new normal? The great Western experience of modernity told us that we could, through human agency, live well without God. But not only has that not worked out well, but there's a growing sense that no one knows what we ought to do. No politician, no political party has an answer apart from some version of a more prosperous self through some combination of the state and capitalism. I'll listen to the debate tomorrow and you tell me if I'm not right. But the bottom line is still the self. And no, I don't have the answer either, but I'm suggesting that there's great opportunity to live as a creative minority in this season in which we find ourselves. And what's a creative minority? Well, the language of creative minority comes from a British historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee, who died in 1975. It was picked up recently by the chief, former chief rabbi of, of England, Jonathan Sachs, in which he wrote the seminal piece, he did, delivered this lecture and wrote the seminal piece called On Creative Minorities. And Toynbee wrote about the decline of civilization in his book, A Study of History, and he was raising the question, once a civilization begins to decline, is, there, is it possible for a civilization to recover, to revive? And his answer was that because civilizations are not just simply material, but they're also, they also have a spiritual dimension, that there is the possibility for recovery. But, he said, that possibility belongs to creative minorities. Sachs picked that up in his, in his article as well in talking about how the Jews for centuries have been a creative minority. So when you're living in a culture that's unraveling where God is not central, where the majority do not share our convictions... Our values, our way of life as a people of God, there are two impulses. And the first impulse is this, it's to separate. To separate. To withdraw, to abandon the culture, to protect yourself, to protect your group. The second impulse is to syncretize. And that's like the chameleon that changes colors to blend in with its surroundings. You accommodate any distinct identity as the people of God is lost, faith is private, you blend in. Related to this impulse, I believe, is the impulse to be relevant. Relevance is about lessening the difference between the, us and the broader culture. That's largely what I see in the Western church. The church in North America, my opinion, but it's still my opinion, I see this going on. I see assimilation into the culture. We are largely being assimilated by the culture where our values and our way of life is the same as the rest of the culture. It largely orbits around the self, but we, at the same time, say that we're seeking to be relevant. And the relevance is really syncretism. And yet, as we'll see in Daniel, when it comes to being a creative minority... How we are different becomes advantageous. 
So in between these two impulses of separating and syncretism is where the creative minority is found living in tension. Listen to the words of Jonathan Sachs. He says, becoming a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. So my question that I'm posing as we begin this study of Daniel is what does it look like for us today to live as a creative minority? And to help us, I'm inviting you to join me and looking at the example of Daniel and his friends from the Old Testament book of Daniel. So if you'll turn in your Bible, there's a blue one underneath your seat, uh, page 737 in those Bibles. Page 737. We'll be looking at the text today, so I'm inviting you to open up a Bible so you can look down at the Bible. All right? Now, as you're turning there, the context is that Babylon has conquered Israel. They've deported the, the elites of Israel to conform them to Babylonian culture. And why do they do that? Well, if they assimilated the elites, then it meant that they were defeating, they were eliminating the culture of the defeated nation. So if you assimilate the elites, then essentially what you do is you eliminate a previous culture. And that was an act of conquering. That was common in the ancient Near East at that time. But also, an expanding empire required more bureaucracy. And so these elites were future diplomats. They were spreading Babylonian culture and influence. And so Daniel and his friends are being groomed for political and propaganda purposes for the empire of Babylon. Notice in verse 3, if we just heard it read, but just I'll be pointing to verses and you can look at it. In verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar orders these elites, uh, and, and they're called, they're titled that they're royal, and that's a reference to verse 6, that they come from the tribe of Judah. He orders that they be brought to the palace. And most commentators, scholars believe that these were young men between the ages of 13 and 16. Because Nebuchadnezzar lives through the entire Babylonian captivity, which was 70 years, and he lives into the Persian Empire. So these were young men of between 13 and 16 who were brought into Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, pause for a second. If you're a parent, if you're a parent of a middle schooler, if you're a parent of a middle school boy, think about this. Think about your middle school, high school son between the ages of 13 and 16 being ripped from their family, being ripped from their home, and being deported to a foreign land, to a foreign culture. Outside of this country, into some place that they'd never been before, they have no idea what's going on there. And there's incredible pressure to cave in into the culture, to go along with the culture, to fit in with the culture, to compromise their faithfulness to God. I mean, after all, who will know? When you're that far away, mom and dad aren't around, family's not around, the structure that's held you in place is all gone. Who will know? And this is where you begin to see how a creative minority lives in tension in the midst of the cultural pressure to conform. 
And in this text, we see, first of all, the pressure of isolation. These guys encounter the pressure of isolation. They're ripped off from the familiar, from what's stable. These are not a bunch of middle schoolers or high schoolers on a short-term missions trip. They're being prepared to be cultural elites. So they are isolated in order to be groomed for this task. Why do so many high school students who are raised by Christian parents, raised in a Christian church, abandon Jesus and Christianity at such a high rate when they go into college? Chris mentioned that in one of his comments. Why Why are the statistics so high? Well, for starters, it has to do with isolation. They're cut off from the familiar, from the structure of family and friends as they go away to college. They're cut off from the shaping influences. They're cut off from the story that they've been part of. And so it's easy to abandon abandon faithfulness to God. But secondly, they also encounter the pressure of indoctrination. If you look at verses 4 and 5... Daniel and his friends are taught the language and the literature of of the Babylonians for three years. So this was essentially like an undergraduate or master's degree in Babylonian culture and language. And this is about being immersed in the Babylonian culture in order to serve the king. Now, let me, this is Aramaic, all right? So this is, this is a little taste of, this kind of looks like Hebrew, but it's Aramaic. You'll, there's parts of Daniel that are written in Aramaic. Daniel chapter 2 breaks from the Hebrew and it's written in Aramaic. That's Aramaic. So these guys would have been, this is what they would have spoken and what they would have written. Now, next, that's Akkadian. Big difference. That looks like wet cement that a chicken has walked in. I mean, it really looks like chicken claws. That's Akkadian. It took me a couple years to learn Hebrew, and I wasn't speaking it. I was just barely reading it. It's tough language. It's a Semitic language. This is another Semitic language. And they had to be schooled in language. Now, when you learn a new language, you have to learn the culture as well because language and culture are tied together. And here was a language that they were immersed in. They were immersed in history of Babylonians. They were immersed in the theology of the Babylonian gods as well. So it was a total immersion. If you notice in verse 4, My text talks about the Chaldeans, but the NIV that they read used the word Babylonians in verse 4. But it refers to the Babylonians in general, but also the Babylonian sages. Listen to what John Goldingay says about these people. The Babylonian sages were the guardians of the sacred traditional lore developed and preserved in Mesopotamia over centuries, covering natural history, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, myth, and chronicle. Much of this learning had a practical purpose being designed to be applied to life by means of astrology, interpreting dreams, the study of sheep livers and other organs, rites of purification, sacrifice, incantation, exorcism, and other forms of divination and magic. So they were being groomed by the Babylonian sages to be able to do that stuff, which makes sense of what we're going to encounter in Daniel when in Daniel 2, Daniel is called before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dreams. Why was he called to interpret his dreams? Because he'd been trained to interpret dreams. He was trained in the school of the Babylonian sages. There was an expectation he would know how to do it. He had a three years master's degree in doing this stuff. 
So you see, he's immersed, totally immersed, along with his friends in this. Finally, there's a pressure of a new identity. In verse 7, the names are changed, and their identity is associated with the Babylonian gods. Belteshazzar means, that's Daniel's new name. When you change somebody's name, you're basically giving them a new identity. Daniel is given the name Belteshazzar, means, which means, what does it mean? I just dropped it out of my brain. <laughs> totally just dropped it out of my brain. <laughs> o Bel, protect the king. Bel means Lord, and it's probably a more specific reference to Marduk. And so it's, it's a, it's, it, it, Daniel's name says, O Bel, protect the king. So he's now associated with the god Marduk, and it's all related to his existence for the sake of the king. Early rabbinic and Christian commentary says that these young men became eunuchs to serve the king in order to fulfill Isaiah 39.7 as fulfillment of Isaiah 39.7, which says, And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So all of this can be described as normalization. And, and normalization is a sociological concept from Michel Foucault and he described, it's described this way. Normalization refers to social processes through which ideas and actions come to be seen as normal and become taken for granted or natural in everyday life. As Foucault used the term, normalization involved the construction of an idealized norm of conduct. For example, the way a proper soldier ideally should stand, march, present arms, and so on, as defined in minute detail, and then rewarding or punishing individuals for conforming to or deviating from this ideal. So basically what he's saying is that this process of normalization involves pressure to conform and there's rewards and there's punishments accordingly. And the culture puts that on you or someone else puts that on you. And certainly we're going to see this in Daniel when Daniel is faced with the pressure to conform and we see this with the, with the fiery furnace, with the lion's den, there's pressure to normalize again and again that he and his friends are facing. It's a very real pressure. So as we're looking at this text this morning, just with the time we have left, it looks like Daniel and his friends are going along with all this kind of indoctrination and this normalization until this issue with the king's food. Now, if you're listening to the text that was being read, the question to me is, why, does, why do Daniel and his friends refuse the king's food? And not even all of it, because they still eat the king's vegetables. So what's going on here in verses 8 and following? Well, I like to suggest to you that Daniel and his friends, as I said before, are in this process of formation for service in Babylon involves not just their minds, but also their bodies. And so they've got this trainer by the name of Ashpenaz, and after their trainer finishes with them, and he's given them this whole process, and their bodies have to look like the Babylonian ideal as well. If you look at Babylonian art, there's a Babylonian ideal for the human body as well. So when this trainer presents them to the royal court after three years of this training. Who gets the credit for this finished product? Babylon, right? Here we go. Babylon has won again. We have conquered another people. Here are the elites, and they look like Babylon. They act like Babylon. They think like Babylon. So by refusing to eat the king's food and still looking as they're described in verse 15, look at the text. 
At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. They know who gets the credit now. Because only God, and the word that is used in the, in the Hebrew here is the word, not the, 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 the proper name of God, but rather the word that is used that means Lord. Only God, the Lord, the true Lord, could sustain them in this, on this specialized diet of vegetables. Now, it's important to notice as well that this was temporary because over in chapter 10, verse 3, Daniel's vision keeps him from enjoying choice meat and wine. So he didn't stay on this diet, and, and there's nothing particularly special about this. And so I would suggest that there's some caution about drawing divine diet principles from this for cookbooks, such as that one. In the same way that I would caution you against buying a cookbook based upon the Big Lebowski, which I did find that too. So it's a good practice to read the genre of narrative as descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. Uh, I think that's good, that's good biblical interpretation, all right? This is a historical particular book. We don't come into it and just say, how does it speak to us today? And that's our primary question, all right? Or make diets out of it. The result of the 10-day experiment, it was found in verses 15 to 21. God gives him favor. Daniel's loyalty to God is vindicated. And behind this is, all of this is God's unseen hand. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So the chapter ends by telling us that Daniel continued in the Babylonian Empire. He outlives the Babylonian Empire and God preserves Daniel not only through the Babylonian rule, but also into the Persian rule. So here's my final thoughts. As we begin to think about what it means to be a creative minority, I think this is encouragement to those of us who desire to live as a creative minority. I believe that we are in some times that we have never seen before. I do believe that the church in America is getting shaken out. And I really do think that we are going to live in times we have never seen before and all the things that we think we can go back and grab a hold of to fix the church are not going to work. But I do believe it's an opportunity to step into what it looks like to live as a created minority. Though dislocated, though a minority, God gives his people wisdom, as we see in this text, the ability to prosper and to be faithful. So to be a creative minority, as Jonathan Sachs says, is about living in tension because there will be pressure to conform, to fit, to blend in, to go with the flow, to compromise faithfulness to God. So how does a creative minority remain a creative minority? Not by separation, not by syncretism, but by living in creative tension. Remaining fully engaged in the world, remaining fully engaged in life as it is, while living a distinctive life marked by faithfulness to God. So, two questions that I leave you with Where are you experiencing pressure to conform? Because this is about conforming to the culture. To be a creative minority means we need to recognize the places where we are being squeezed into conformity. 
And you know what? You really can't answer that by yourself because we tend to be blind to ourselves. We tend to tell ourselves untruths. So it would be good to ask someone else or have a group of people that you trust to speak into that in your own life. And what's interesting is we're not under threat like Daniel was of loss of life if we don't conform to the practices, the values, the ideals of our culture. And we have great privilege. We have great opportunity to live distinctively as the people of God. So that leaves, leads me to the second question. Where are you living out your privilege? Where are you living out your privilege for the glory of God? You have a privilege to live a distinctive life in faithfulness to God. Where are you living that out? Thanks be to God. We'll pick it up next week.